how they masquerade in books. They call them presidents, but they the fuck the real crooks. Peace to you and welcome to the Abolitionist Daily. On today's inaugural broadcast, President's Day, a national holiday to commemorate the birthdays of America's most esteemed former chief, chief executives, take a look at, at this as being divine design that the Abolitionist Daily is here to make it clear that slavery was laid as a foundation for the building of this nation. And despite the hero worship lauded upon these presidents, Washington and Lincoln were both actually in favor of slavery. One openly participated in slavery for nearly 60 years. And we can see from the Declaration of Independence all the way to the Emancipation Proclamation that both of these articles were full of rhetoric and empty promises to the African-American slaves. Uh, today we'll be discussing not only President's Day and the legacies of Presidents George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. We'll also uh, look at the Emancipation Proclamation and the response from Frederick Douglass at that same time and some of his predictions of what would occur in America based on what he was seeing that was still going on in, in American slavery in the 1880s. We are going to take a look at Corrections Corporation of America recently having their fourth quarter earnings uh, conference call for their, their shareholders. And we'll take a look at how this, uh, the largest private prison slavery company in America and therefore in the world, how they're able to continue to control legislation, inspire corporations to lobby our Congress and control laws that continue to pour in profits for them, billions and billions of dollars per year using modern-day slavery and human trafficking. From there, we'll take a look at Florida, who has been a truly troubled situation down there with a rash of inmate uh, deaths in custody in their prison system. Their Department of Corrections uh, continuing to go through overhauls as they're now on their fourth Secretary of uh, Department of Corrections, uh, Julie Jones, they're fourth in four years, seventh in eight years, um, and how the uh, Florida State Senate is taking control away from the governor to some degree to provide greater oversight into what's going on down there in Florida's prisons. After that, we're going to look at the state of Illinois and what's going on in the with the state employees there and how state prison employees are actually some of the highest earning employees that work for the state with uh, individuals like a, a nurse there named Laura Loretta Coleman who earned nearly $200,000 which is over $100,000 in overtime pay because the state is so out of control with their corrections department We'll wrap up our news stories with a, a look at a lawsuit from a gentleman who has been in prison for over a year for crossing the border illegally, and he has not had any trial given to him as yet to find him guilty of any breaking any laws, but he is being held in custody 
and subjected to modern-day slavery as a result. So we'll take a look at his $15 million lawsuit against Management and Training Corporation, which is actually uh, one of the large private prison companies here in America also. And we will also look at a profile from the Unexplainable Black Death Files, a recent ruling that allowed police to get away with a drive-by shooting on a young 18-year-old high school track star named Raphael Briscoe. And we'll have some more news and some more thoughts here as time permits. So again, I thank you for joining us in the inaugural program today. Working with uh, Brother Scotty Reed as we're we're working through some uh, technical difficulties that we had with the stream originally, but hopefully everything is going a little bit better now. So for the guests that have been a part of new uh, or a part of the uh, Black Talk Radio Network and, and tune in regularly to the stream, we apologize for any difficulties or any delays in getting the, the news out to you. But we're here now, so thank you for joining us and tell a friend. We are working to increase the ranks of the abolitionist movement, the modern abolitionist, the new abolitionist fighting against the same old slavery. Uh, we have a strong social media presence. So by all means, follow us on Facebook. There is a uh, page for the abolitionist daily that that's recently gone up and that will be where the links that we discuss on this program daily will be added to that page we also have the New Abolitionist Radio Facebook page, which is which has grown uh, incredibly over this last year, and we appreciate the support. Uh, definitely the listeners getting the word out and spreading that around and, and helping to share that information and get more people aware of what's happening. We have the Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery and Human Trafficking, which is actually a private uh, Facebook group where individuals are, are uh, in in, in inspired to join and share information and we are able to put out uh, calls to action um, here most recently we were able to put out a call to action for uh, elder uh, Russell Maroon Schultz who we were given a report that he was being denied medical treatment for uh, cancer that he was diagnosed with and we had a, a wonderful response from the uh, followers in the move to abolish 21st century slavery group and then we're able to share that out through our our other, other Facebook pages and also on our Twitter and the abolitionist daily program will be sharing the same uh, Twitter stream, Twitter account with the, the weekly new abolitionist radio program, which is uh, on Twitter at N a R end slavery. So that's new abolitionist radio initials N a R end slavery. Uh, we're on Twitter there. And again, the links are all available throughout Twitter. So, uh, blast all that information out as well as you hear us discussing these things on the program and, and uh, make sure to help us expand the reach <clears throat> because again this is a daily program being done simply because we can't cover all of the links in a, in a two hour period and Scotty Reed was actually gracious enough to uh, to give us an additional 30 minutes because we were hardly ever finishing the program uh, throughout uh, last year New Abolitions Radio in a, in a 90 minute format we were constantly going over, so we're at two hours now, and we're still going over the two-hour time period just presenting the information, just presenting to you, you know, uh, in, informed, educated leaders and uh, people as guests and interviews on the program, 
you know, getting a chance to dig deep into these matters with these people is a is a really rare and privileged opportunity. So we take full advantage of that and ask them the tough questions and, and we get people to come out as being abolitionists and declare themselves as allies to the movement. So that's well uh, that's what we're all about and what we're doing. So that program is going long and as a result we have a whole different program now that goes uh every day now. So again, as I've said a few times, I can't t- I can't say thank you enough for you uh joining me here and uh being a part of this 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 new effort to to teach the world and make a change for our future generations. That's why I'm here is uh so that I won't end up a slave myself, but definitely to look out for my children and my unborn grandchildren and on down the line. I don't want any more generations. It stops with me. The slavery stops with me. So we look today again, as I said, at, at the uh, President's Day holiday, and um, it was actually uh, on January 31st. It was actually 150 years ago that uh, the United States Congress passed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, and I consider that by all means to be one of the biggest lies ever told in America. And it began back then to weave its way into the fabric of of our reality as is a part of why this and looked at you know around the world as a part of why this nation is is so great uh considered to be so great among uh, the other nations of the world and, and people come here seeking freedom and and believing that there this is a place to be free so um as we look at that again like i said we i got some information from a website called mountvernon.org which actually is dedicated to the memory and the legacy of George Washington, our nation's first president. Um, and the, the article I found is titled 10 facts about Washington and slavery. And it goes in giving us some information that maybe we didn't know, um, about this guy, about, you know, the, our, our great forefather and, all of his exploits and all of what, to me, it seems almost being sympathetic to him. Like he was just a man caught up in the time and he didn't know how to do any different or didn't know how to do any better, but he was actually a pretty decent guy. So starts off, uh, despite having been an active slaveholder for 56 years, George Washington struggled with the institution of slavery and spoke frequently of his desire to end the practice. At the end of his life, Washington made the bold step to free his slaves in his 1799 will. He was the only slaveholding founding father to do so. And uh, we we begin with the first in the list of the top ten things, the top ten facts that maybe you didn't know about old George. And what a great guy he was, even though he had slaves for nearly 60 years. It says, uh, fact number one, George Washington first became a slave owner at the early age of 11. It says when Washington's father, Augustine, died in 1743, George Washington became a slave owner at the early age of 11. In his will, Augustine left his son the 280-acre family farm near Fredericksburg, Virginia. In addition, Washington was willed 10 slaves. As a young adult, Washington purchased at least eight more slaves, including a carpenter named Kit. Washington purchased more slaves in 1755 including four men, two women, and a child. So 
there you have it. He uh, received his slaves in the will of his father. But he did go on as a young adult to buy more slaves. Uh, we know that George Washington was the largest single landholder in America at one time. So clearly he jumped right into the, into the market and, uh, worked his land and, and worked the system to his advantage to amass his wealth. And he's really no different team than George Washington, George Zoli, same guy, in my opinion, a CEO of, G- of Geo Group. So the next, uh, fact about Washington is that at the time of his death, the Mount Vernon enslaved population consisted of 318 people. Of the 318 slaves living at Mount Vernon in 1799, a little less than half, which was three individuals, were owned by George Washington himself. Another 153 slaves at Mount Vernon in 1799 were dowry slaves from the Cust estate. When Martha Washington's first husband, Daniel Park Custis, died without a will in 1757, she received a life interest in one-third of his estate, including the slaves. Neither George nor Martha could free these slaves by law. It was not possible for George. He was the great war chief, strategist, uh, the, the man that broke the bonds of tyranny, stood up for justice and freedom and equal rights and God-given all this other stuff he stood for. But it was not in his power to free these slaves by law. He was bound by a tyranny that was greater than him. As soon as he set this country free, he turned around and he found himself bound by this law. He couldn't set him free. Neither could Martha. She had to bring him from her previous marriage and bring him on to George. And they just had to keep these slaves. Says, um... Upon Martha's death, these individuals reverted to the Custis estate, so the slaves couldn't even be set free after she died. So this is the reality of these people. They went went through these generations, and through all these people's lives, these slaves just kept living and just kept getting passed around. They went back to the Custis estate and were divided among her grandchildren. So they went on into the future and their children, and their children's children, on into the future. So that was uh, fact number two. They couldn't do anything about the slavery. There was nothing they could do about it. Number three, Mar- uh, marrying Martha Washington significantly increased his, Washington's number of slaves. So it was Martha's fault. She was married to a man that owned a lot of slaves. And when he died, she had no choice, like I said, but to bring him with her. And that just made Washington a victim of circumstance again. This is your founding father. First president of this country. He couldn't do anything. He was a victim. Says as a widow of a wealthy planter who died without a will in 1757, Martha's share of the Custis estate brought another 84 slaves to Mount Vernon. The stark increase in the enslaved population of Mount Vernon at this time reflected similar trends in, in the region. When George Washington took control of the Mount Vernon property in 1754, the population of Fairfax County was around 6,500 people, of whom a little more than 1,800 or about 28% were slaves of African origin. The proportion of slaves in the population as a whole rose throughout the century, and by the end of the American Revolution, it was over 40% of the people living in Fairfax County were slaves. So, when he moved there, there were slaves, and as he was seeking his freedom, there were slaves, and as he fought and began a war with England for, for freedom, 
and to have his own country and have a place for people to be free, the number of slaves just kept increasing. But again, he's a victim. This is what was happening at the time. There wasn't anything he could do. He, he was fighting, but he, he wasn't fighting for that. So, Number four, the accounts vary regarding Washington's treatment of Mount Vernon's enslaved population. So the accounts vary. He kept them as slaves is enough information for me. I don't know what other accounts you really need to look into. He kept people as property, human chattel, individuals born free by the creator, but they were not free by the hand of men. And this is as according to the color of their skin. So I don't know what accounts we need to, to look into. Says sources offer differing insight into behavior as a slave owner. On one end of the spectrum, Richard Parkinson, an Englishman who lived near Mount Vernon, once reported that it was the sense of all his, uh, it was the sense of all his, that's talking about Washington's neighbors, that he treated his slaves with more severity than any other man. So, yeah, it could be said he was mean on one hand. On the other side, conversely, a foreign visitor traveling in America once recorded that George Washington dealt with his slaves, quote, far more humanely than do his fellow citizens of Virginia. What is clear is that Washington freely, uh, frequently utilized harsh punishment against the enslaved population, including whippings and the threat of particularly taxing work assignments. Perhaps most severely, Washington could sell a slave to a buyer in the West Indies ensuring that the person would never see their family or friends at Mount Vernon again. He conducted these types of sales on several occasions. So, like I said, I don't know what the uh, varying accounts could be. He held people as slaves. There's, there's no variation beyond that. You hold someone as a slave and you hold their life in your hand. And here you are, the, the hypocrisy of being a man that is seen as one most signer on his independence and being in Delaware and fighting and being all this other crap they teach our children in these public schools and these things that our society upholds <clears throat> but you know that's just once you scratch beneath the surface, the reality of the truth is clear. And that's connected directly to what's going on right now with modern day slavery. Once you scratch beneath the surface of, oh, don't do crime and you won't go to jail. And you look at the fact that nearly 5,000 new laws have been written and put on the books in the last few years, even the continuing hyper criminalization of American citizenry overall. So that the, the slave machine can continue to be fed. That's just below the surface of making silly statements like, well, just don't commit crime. So we'll move on to uh, the number five fact that you never knew. The slaves at the Mount Vernon practice diverse religious traditions and customs. So obviously there is some uh, tradition that came over from the lands where slaves were taken from. And there were some religious beliefs and, and practices that people came here with, obviously. And I guess he was a good guy because he allowed them to continue some of that stuff. So, 
But let's look at this. Influences from both African and European religious practices can be found amongst Mount Vernon's enslaved population. Some slaves at Mount Vernon participated with local organized Christian congregations to some degree. Also, Mount Vernon's enslaved community developed at least one spiritual leader from within their own community named Caesar. It's like straight out of Planet of the Apes, damn. According to a runaway slave advertisement from the spring of 1798. So a runaway slave got away and told them all about how Caesar had told him to, to get free. Uh, further, the enslaved population at Mount Vernon had contact with at least three other Christian denominations, Baptists, Methodists, and Quakers. There were also several remnants of religious traditions from Africa continuing to some degree at Mount Vernon, including both Voodoo and Islam. So, there you have it. He was a free-thinking man. He, As long as you did the work and remained a slave... I suppose you could uh, practice Christianity, whether Baptist or Methodist or Quaker. You could practice Islam, or if you want to be into that dark religion from the dark continent. Oh my goodness! So this is the justification. This is, and I mean, again, this is at the MountVernon.org website. This is his legacy website. This is what introduces people to who he is as our first president and one of our our greatest leaders. This is the uh, the rhetoric that people are exposed to. So, um, I, I mean, again, this is why uh, the abolitionist day is live and on air right now, and is going to be on day to day to spread the propaganda to counteract foolishness like this, to tell you the real story of what's going on and what happened and how we got here, um, as opposed to just allowing it to go unchecked. Because you see where our country is at right now. And uh, the country seems to overwhelmingly believe that slavery was abolished. We have clear proof that it was not. And uh, they seem to believe overwhelmingly that these were good people and take their families to Mount Rushmore to see the busts and take their families to D.C. to see all the monuments. And, I mean, this is an on. This is a wonderful vacation and, a, and, a, and a, a trip to be remembered for life and an inspiration for our youth to go see these monuments and see where these great men laid their heads and made their claim to fame and all this other crap. This is where these people held slaves and built a fortune off for the backs of African ancestors, but we'll move on. So number six, on numerous occasions, slaves ran away from the Washington household in an attempt to gain their freedom. Vernon's enslaved community took opportunities when possible to physically escape their enslavement. <laughs> Imagine that. As good as the, the first forefather of America was treating them. As much as he let them worship their gods and worship his new god he gave them. and <sighs> To go back and forth as they please or whatever or at the threat of being shipped out of the country if he didn't like what they were doing. Imagine that these people actually had the nerve to want to escape to gain their freedom. Says Mount Vernon's enslaved community took opportunities when possible to physically escape their enslavement. For example, in April of 1781, during the American Revolution, 17 members of the Mount Vernon enslaved population, 14 men and 3 women, fled to the British warship HMS Savage, which was anchored in the Potomac off the shore of the plantation. So there's Washington's plantation right there on the shore of the Potomac. So he had himself set up well, man. 
In other instances, members of the enslaved community who were directly connected to the Washingtons either attempted to or were successfully in their escape plans. These individuals included Washington's personal assistant, Christopher Shields, whose plan to escape with his fiancée was thwarted. The family cook, Hercules, and Martha Washington's personal maid, Oni Judge, both of whom escaped successfully. So, this is where we've scratched just beneath the, the, the veneer, just beneath the, 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 the glossy, pretty surface of our great forefather president who had his picture, his portrait created on several occasions with the teeth of his slaves. They don't have this on the list of how he snatched the teeth out of his slaves' mouths and had them put in his own mouth. So if you just think about the savagery of something like that, that's that's what the country's built on. Number seven, slaves at Mount Vernon also resisted their enslavement through less noticeable means. Oh, imagine that. Good Negroes who didn't run away, they just passively resisted, kind of like they want us to passively, peacefully resist and protest today, I suppose. Running away was a risky venture that often did not succeed. As a result, Mount Vernon's enslaved population frequently resisted their bondage through a variety of methods while working on the plantation. I mean, that is exactly like what is going on right now. Exactly what we're seeing coast to coast in the protests, the die-ins, the hands up, don't shoot. Walking around with signs telling people to stop. Black lives matter. matter. Muslim lives matter. Stop killing us. Stop beating us. Stop raping us when we do end up in prison. Stop making us slaves. I won't get into how passive or uh, protesting or whatever is wasting all of our time. Let's just stick to the story here. I'm sorry. Individuals utilize less notable methods of resistance, including feigning illnesses, (laughs) malingering, working slowly, producing shoddy work, or in misplacing or damaging tools and equipment. I bet that used to piss him off. Damn it, you're tearing up my tools, tearing up my equipment. I know you ain't sick. See, at this time, the medical field was still pretty young in America. And they actually had this this medical theory that slaves could work harder and longer and under the most incredibly horrible conditions beyond what any other human beings on the planet could do. So it really was no sick day for a slave. So, being happy when they would pretend like they're sick. This reminds me of that Boondocks episode when they talked about Catcher Freeman and the version of the story that they tried to tell at first. Uh, Uncle Ruckus tried to tell, like the slaves were just so lazy and would not get to work and just resisted the master and mocked him and made jokes and made him look silly or something. I mean, this is ridiculous. As if these people could get away with feigning. How the hell do you feign illness and you're a damn slave? Anyway, theft was a particularly frequent act of visible slave resistance. So now we got the history of looting. Right here, they're telling you, theft. Of course, people were starving to death. Of course, people were wearing burlap for a shirt and nothing else. 
until they became of adulthood in some kind of burlap pants or something and a shirt. No shoes in a lot of cases. All through the winter, frostbit toes, whatever. But they were using theft as a, as a way to, to resist slavery. Wow. Over the years, slaves at Mount Vernon were accused of stealing a wide variety of objects, including tools, fabrics, yams, <laughs> raw wool, wine, rum, milk, butter, fruits, meats, corn, and potatoes. Damn, they got a list, don't they? They know exactly what them slaves stole. So, this is all things that used to, used to mess up George Washington's day. Damn it, I come home and you slaves have been stealing fabric again. Number eight, in December of 1775, Washington, the newly appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, received a letter from Phyllis Wheatley containing an ode written in his honor. Fuck you, Phyllis. Phyllis Wheatley was an enslaved woman brought to Boston from West Africa at just seven years of age. Uncommon for practices at the time, Wheatley ins received instruction in subjects ranging from Greek, Latin, poetry, from the daughter of her owners. By age 12, Wheatley began writing poetry, and by 18, she had become well-known for the publication of an elegy she wrote commemorating the death of a prominent preacher. In the winter of 1775, Wheatley sent Washington a letter containing an ode to the newly appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. The poem concluded, quote, Proceed, great chief, with virtue on thy side. Thy every action let the good, the goddess guide. A crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine. With gold unfading, Washington be thine. Wow. Washington responded kindly to Wheatley in a letter, the only known missive that he wrote to an enslaved individual. So see, this is what's so good about George Washington. Though he struggled with slavery for nearly 60 years of his adult life, he he did put it in his will to let all those slaves go. And at one point in his life, he really didn't have to worry. He didn't even have to consider it. But, you know, in the middle of the Revolutionary War and in the midst of all the hubbub and the press, he took the time out to write a slave to this poor slave girl, or write a letter to this poor slave girl. And uh, the letter's called Miss Phyllis. An unusually polite way for a member of the gentry to address a slave. He called her Miss Phyllis. Very similar to modern day clowning that goes on in our society, but I won't try to stay on point. So Washington invited Wheatley to call on him at his headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In March of 1776, Washington courteously received Wheatley's visit. Given Washington's status as a slaveholder, their meeting was an early instance of the progression of racial understanding in antebellum America. Man, this guy, he was amazing. What better person to have as our president, a good all-around guy like this? Number nine, with little free time and control over their everyday life, Mount Vernon's enslaved population attempted to exert some free will and choice when it came to their private lives. Damn it, these slaves said if we slaves, we still gonna be free somehow. We gonna, you can't step out the light of us having a good time. Cause you know black folks always find a way to have a good time. Mount Vernon's enslaved community used, usually worked a six day week with Sunday generally being the day off for everyone on the plantation. On a daily basis, in addition to their day's work, 
Slaves had their own housekeeping work, such as tending the chickens and tending their garden plots and doing their little bit of cooking and for making preserves and caring for their clothes and their extensive wardrobe. They had to keep that up, stay with the trends, you know. Shout out to Kanye. With uh, precious little free time and control over their own schedule, slaves at Mount Vernon attempted to exert some control over their personal lives. Some slaves at Mount Vernon spent their free time. <laughs> Can't even believe I'm reading those words. Some slaves at Mount Vernon spent their free time. What the hell? Visiting with one another. In some instances, slaves visited other plantations where their spouses lived. It was no big deal. Your wife lived 20 miles away and you had to walk both ways and had to be back before a certain hour. You'd be hung. Ah, good life. Some even used their time to play games and sports. A visitor to Mount Vernon during the summer of 1798 described what may have been a team sport played by slaves on Sunday. Oh, my God. The visitor from Poland recorded witnessing a group of about 30 slaves divided into two groups playing the game he described as, quote-unquote, prisoner's base, which involved jumps and gambles as if they had rested all week. Moving on to number 10. Because, see, what's not going to happen on this program is I'm not going to start my famous rants. I'm going to be under control on this program. Scotty Reed, I'm going to handle myself on this program. I'm stick to the facts. I'm not going to start all that extra ranting and raving. So what would be the point? I'm here to give you the history right now, then we'll get into the news right after this. Uh Number 10, George Washington left instructions in his will for the emancipation of his slaves upon the death of Martha Washington. This is his crowning achievement. Washington wrote his will several months before his death in December 1799. In the document, Washington left directions for the eventual emancipation of his slaves after the passing of Martha Washington. Of the 318 slaves at Mount Vernon in 1799, 123 of the individuals were owned by George Washington and were eligible to be freed as per the terms of his will. However, these conditions did not apply to all slaves at Mount Vernon. By law, and remember, even today, President Barack Obama, our first truly African and American president, has reminded us in the face of all this unexplainable black death, in the face of all of this hyper-criminalization and imprisonment and enslavement, abuse, on and on what's going on, systematic terrorization of people of color in this country, the domestic colony known as African Americans. He reminds us that this is a nation of laws. And even in Ferguson, when the riots started, as they call them riots, Ferguson Spring, Assistant Attorney General of the State of Missouri came out and made a statement to remind us that this country is a nation of laws. And these laws are founded on a long tradition of Anglo-American ordinances that we adopted. And we have to stick to them. And we had to stick to them in 1799. Even though the president, the first president, said he wanted these slaves free by law, they could not be made free. 
so when Martha Washington died in 1802, these individuals became property once again of the Custis estate and were divided among the grandchildren. By 1799, 153 slaves at Mount Vernon were a part of that property. In accordance with the state law, George Washington stipulated in his will that elderly slaves or those who were too sick to work were to be supported by his estate in perpetuity. Damn fine master. The remaining non-dower slaves at Mount Vernon did not have to wait for Martha Washington's death to receive their freedom. This creates a little rift, doesn't it? <laughs> because you come from a different owner, now you get free and I'm still here. I imagine they probably all would have liked to have been able to leave. Writing on the subject to her sister, Abigail Adams explained that Martha Washington's motives were largely driven by self-interest. In the state in which they were left by the general to be free at her death, Adams explained, she did not feel as though her life was safe in their hands. <laughs> Those damn black terrorists, scary black people. What the president did when George died, she how could she risk having all those thugs? All those animals around her? She had to get rid of them. She was doing it out of self-interest, her sister said. She didn't want to leave her life in their hands. Many of them believed, according to, to her sister, Abigail Adams, that it was in their interest to get rid of her. So she was advised to set them free at the end of the year. In December 1800, Martha Washington signed a deed of manumission for her deceased husband's slaves a transaction that is recorded in the abstracts of the Fairfax County, Virginia court records. They finally became free January 1, 1801. So there you have a little bit of history about George Washington and his, uh, his time as a slave master. It's, uh, very colorful. I mean, to say the least, he, uh, he seems to me like a basically a, a wealthy slave owner of the time. I don't see a whole lot of uh, empathy there, sympathy. I don't see him breaking new grounds, changing the laws, doing anything with his power and might. God held his hand and made him strong in battle. He just didn't seem to want to battle. His biggest problem in life was getting new teeth and, I guess, beating slaves for stealing tools. So... At any rate, we're going to take our first break of the broadcast. Um, you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. This is the Abolitionist Daily. Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Okay, and we are back, I believe. This is the Abolitionist Daily. This is your host, Johan and Elia. We are uh, discussing today, President's Day, um, discussing a little bit of the history of our country and our, our esteemed forefathers, the great men. Uh, um, who built the nation. And we just discussed uh, some facts about George Washington, some things that a lot of people maybe never knew or 
never really cared about, I guess. I don't know. Um, at any rate, we, uh, we discussed those matters and I'm going to move forward a, a little bit towards what, uh, our next great president, Abraham Lincoln, had a stake in this thing and what he was all about. Uh, before the Civil War actually kicked off, he was rather divisive with the way he discussed slavery and discussed the, the situation of having all these Negroes running around in this country up to no good. So uh, one quote from him, I have no purpose to introduce political and social equality between the white and the black races. I'm in favor of the race to which I belong having the superior position. I've never said anything to the contrary. And in another place, um, 1858, uh, Lincoln was quoted as saying, uh, anything that argues me into the idea of perfect social and political equality with the Negro is but a specious and fantastic arrangement of words by which a man can prove a horse chestnut to be a chestnut horse. So he kind of got, got slick with it. <laughs> a little, little comedy with his racist hatred. William Lloyd Garrison perhaps the staunchest friend of the black slave and a true abolitionist declared that Lincoln had quote, not one drop of anti-slavery blood in his veins. And even more damning Lincoln supported Southern slave owners claims to human property and said that he would give them any legislation for the reclaiming of their fugitives. So, we find in another place uh, in 1852 that he made quotes uh, concerning wanting to get all blacks off American soil, period. He wanted to deport black people. Get them out of here. Says deportation of blacks so that their places can be filled up by free white labor. So he was trying to build a better nation and trying to build up a white workforce. And that was one way, maybe I guess he was seen as one to end slavery, was if he could just get rid of the black people. But it certainly wasn't any kind of effort to get blacks freed from slavery so they could have an open, equal opportunity to compete for resources here on the in this country and uh, pursue their own happiness and their own lives and personal fulfillment until their natural death. That had nothing to do with him and who he was and what he believed. And we know that that is true with his crowning piece, the Emancipation Proclamation, where he said explicitly that slavery was abolished except for when a person could be convicted of a crime. So it was already in place years before we found on New Abolitionist Radio, we discussed how years before, this same quote was already in law and already in place and set up the foundation for what would become the 13th Amendment, the Emancipation Proclamation, the, the, the abolishment, quote unquote, of slavery. So he took a piece that was already there and looked to expand on that. So <clears throat> as we know, that was all, uh, you know, a lot of his pre-Civil War attitudes 
and um, his quotes during the time of the Civil War, and we know where he stood and what he did. So we can also look at Frederick Douglass and his thoughts about President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation after the uh, quote, quote unquote, new America had um, had come to pass. And, you know, he had some years to look at the legislation and see what kind of America was really created. And just like an abolitionist movement of today, we know that this was a lie and he was telling them at that time. Says, um, I've got some quotes from him at, uh, during that time, but as we know, you know, Frederick Douglass was born a slave and escaped as a, as a young man, a young boy, uh, through his own means. If you are at all familiar with his autobiography, he goes into great detail about it. He was not, and I'm not saying there's a huge difference. I'm not, I'm not about to say this to, to try to make, you know, as though, if you weren't in Mississippi, you didn't know slavery. I mean, slavery, slavery, uh, the, the racism, the terrorism, you know, the things that were done was universal. Um, but he was not from the so-called South and, you know, didn't fool around in the South like that. I mean, he was an escaped slave still, even though he found a, a group of free, uh, people to work with and found, you know, white, uh, abolitionists and sympathetic individuals that would work with him. He was still an escaped slave, so he didn't fool around in the South, uh, needless to say. Um, but he did take an opportunity to take a trip through the South after the Emancipation Proclamation had been passed and some years in time had passed. Uh, in fact, in uh, 1888, he went on a, a bit of a Southern speaking tour. And uh, while he was, uh, he went through South Carolina, we know, and uh, through Georgia, and uh, his description of the situation, uh, he, he said that the the black folks there were, quote unquote, nominally free, but they were actually still slaves. So he came back to Washington, D.C. to uh, be a part of the celebration of the 26th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And um, his address revealed how deeply he had been moved by his southern tour. His voice quivered with rage as he described how the Negro was nominally free, but actually a slave. In earnest tones, he told the nation, I here and now denounce his so-called emancipation as a stupendous fraud, a fraud upon him and a fraud upon this nation. So he's talking about Abraham Lincoln, of course. And <clears throat> what he was seeing in 1888 was the forced labor of imprisoned black men and women throughout the convict lease system, as uh, Brother Max talks about on a uh, new abolitionist radio, as a as a uh, a man that, that lives in the state of South Carolina. He discusses the history of that state uh, all the time on the program, and he told us, you know, as soon as the Emancipation Proclamation was uh, ra uh, uh, ratified, eighteen sixty five, eighteen sixty six, the first state prison in the state of South Carolina was up and running. So this was by design, and uh, this this was the plan from the beginning, and this is the continuation of uh, slavery after uh, its so-called abolishment. Um, so through convict lease system, uh, which, you know, this was used by states and local governments, obviously white farmers and uh, corporations, all in the aftermath of the Civil War. So what most people don't realize is that convict leasing and debt peonage uh, obviously Jim Crow, as many have heard of the, the new Jim Crow, uh, the Michelle Alexander book that kind of popular, popularized the conversation about modern, well, she doesn't call it slavery, but mass incarceration. We obviously know that it is slavery. 
all of this continued until World War II. Um, and, you know, really up through the, the civil rights movement, uh, much of it. There was still pockets of it, and this is why people were fighting so hard. It wasn't like Michael Brown's death wasn't the reason why Ferguson blew up. The civil rights movement didn't blow up because Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat. It didn't blow up because black folks wanted to eat at the Woolworth lunch counter. All of these things blow up because people have had decades and generation after generation of oppression shoved down their throats and up their asses. So at some point, you know, people go pop and they start working to make things change. And what we try to do with the abolitionist daily and with the new abolitionist movement overall is continue to keep you educated and informed so you can go pop and you can become a part of the movement to end this and not just sit passively acting like Solomon Northrup entering into contracts with white supremacy and ignoring all the slaves right in your eye, line of sight, you avoid making eye contact so you can keep getting contracts and you can build your house and you can raise your family and you can ride in your nice buggy with your nice clothes and you can be assimilated right into the We're the anti-Solomon Northrop crew here. We want to we want to make you realize slavery's bad before you become a slave, before someone in your family becomes enslaved, before someone that you know becomes lynched a victim of lynching by the modern day slave catchers, the police department, law enforcement with its roots in slave catching. See, before George Washington was in the 1750s or so on uh, Mount Vernon, before he was worried about slaves tearing up his tools and stealing fabric so they could make them some, some kind of covering for their, for their naked bodies. In 1660, uh, I believe it was, I could look it up right quick, but in, in the 1600s, the city of Boston had already, had already established the slave patrols. Hold on a second, I think we may have lost our, our feed again. Let me see, Scotty Reed, you there? Are we there? Okay, well, I'm going to keep going. I'm not really sure if we did or not. But the point being of all of this, that this is from the old days, and we're not seeing anything really new or different going on right now. It's the same slavery as we've had in the past. Oh, let me see. I think, yeah, I think we're, I think we're out. I don't have sound anymore. Where are we at? Where are we got? Are we still in? Keep going. Okay. Um, okay. Well, I'll wrap up the, uh, the, uh, Abraham Lincoln Frederick Douglass thing here and we'll um we'll wrap it up since we're still having some technical problems and then we'll work on getting all that stuff up and then we can get into the stories uh with tomorrow because no doubt we'll have it have it worked out and we'll 
like I said, this is a daily program. So just to wrap up, uh, I mean, the ultimate message of the program today and the message of this program overall, so as you're getting an introduction to what the Abolitionist Daily is going to be about, is the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So what I need you to understand as a follower of this program and a, and hopefully as a, a person that wants to be a part of this movement is that the people that the 13th Amendment was intended for were African people in America. And this is why it's called a reconstructive amendment, because it's meant to repair or to reconstruct the lives that were damaged by the inhumanity of slavery. The exception was placed into the 13th Amendment, though, for the intention of specifically re-enslaving those freed Africans. It was intended specifically for African people. And it's continuing to impact mainly African people. Africans in America have been criminalized ever since their enslavement. And to justify the inhumanity of slavery... And the continued criminalization of people of color after they've been emancipated and turn around and re-enslave them through black code legislation. That's just the thing. All of this is legislation. And that's where our persecution is coming from, is from the appropriate legislation of Section 2 of the 13th Amendment. It's from legislation that our communities become ghettos, quote unquote. Every African community across America, every city in America represented by Africans are being and have been slated for political deprivation, economic disadvantage, social, national disparagement, and white supremacist institutional discrimination. This is why our solution for all of this is the same solution now as ever been the abolition of slavery. Uh, Again, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution declares that neither slavery nor voluntary servitude except as punishment for a crime, except as punishment for a crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted and on and on and on. So our position here is that mass incarceration and the subsequent prison labor for slave wages is not the new Jim Crow. It's just the same old slavery. So after all of that, I feel like we get off to a good start with this inaugural broadcast of the Abolitionist Daily. And uh, before we close out the program today, I want to take a minute to remind you that you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. And this is 100% community funded, community building community-concerned radio. This is our side of the propaganda wars. This is our opportunity to tell the truth to our people, to speak truth to power, to guide our people out of darkness into the light. This is where we do this. Nobody has to give us an opportunity to do it. We are doing it for ourselves, and we, of course, love your listening support. And love that you join in with us and become a member of the Move to Abolish 21st Century Slavery. 
join in on the new abolitionist radio page on Facebook or join the abolitionist daily page on Facebook or join our Twitter page, uh, new abolitionist radio in slavery, NAR in slavery at Twitter, follow our YouTube page, new abolitionists. We love all of that. And we also love when you make generous contributions to the black talk media project, you can find the black talk media project online at blacktalkmediaproject.org. All the information you need there so you can make a contribution, so you can help this radio station continue to expand and help us expand the movement, help us to bring about real change for your own present lives and, of course, all of our children's future. So we will be back tomorrow Thank you, Scotty Reed. Thank you, Black Talk Radio Network. Thank you, Abolitionist Daily listeners. Peace to the abolitionists and death to the oppressors. I started the slave ships. Slave ships. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable. Until you reflected for 200 years, ships sailed carrying cargo and slaves. Man, man, be non-violent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums. Yeah,